Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Hebrews chapter 9, 24 to 28. Welcome everybody to the Christian Optimist. My name is Pastor Rafe Chenery. I'm so glad you are with us today. Got a really important episode and also a bit of a different episode. Uh, today I'm going to be taking you on a real deep doctrinal dive into the doctrine of justification, particularly looking at how Catholics and Protestants differ on this doctrine. Now, a little bit of background for you. Over the last number of months, we've had a number of folks who have a very strong Catholic background attending our church, Uh, and so I've had a lot of conversations with folks just about where they're at and what they believe and kind of walking through the scripture, so this has been on my mind a little bit. Secondly, I did a podcast a number of months ago walking through some of the big differences between Catholicism and and, uh, Protestantism. And on that podcast, I laid out, kind. Of, I think I laid out five big categories. I don't remember all of them, but I think the big categories were, you know, uh, the, the, the different sources of authority, right? The, um, the doctrine of justification. We talked about saints and, uh, and praying to, to Mary and kind of Mariology and kind of these, these bigger differences of not just opinion, but doctrinal differences between the two. And it came to my attention, there were a couple people that reached out to me and just kind of acknowledged there, there were a handful of uh, issues in that that I did not use precise enough language on. In fact, we were a little sloppy on some of our descriptions. The overall big buckets were all accurate. In fact, there's a wonderful book by R.C. Sproul. Uh, what's the name of that book called? I think it's called Are We Divided, or are we to, I'll have to look it up before I, I'll put it in the description. A wonderful book by R.C. Sproul, where he kind of co- like compares uh, Catholicism to Protestantism, and he ends up using basically the same category as I did as well. So the categories are accurate, but some of the details when I got to talking about them, uh, we were imprecise. And my job as a pastor is to be precise, because we serve a precise God. Uh, God is clear, and uh, any time where I've been sloppy, I want to acknowledge that. So uh, we were sloppy on that episode. There were some uh, terms that we were using that were not quite precise. In fact, there were a couple little little snippets in there where we were actually um, not representing either category, Protestantism or Catholicism, really well. And my goal is never—so whenever you're talking about faith or worldviews, uh, there, there's a sneaky way to go about proving your point, and that's called a straw man argument. It's where you set up kind of a, a weak version of the opposing view in order to easily knock it over. I never want to do that. Rather, what I want to do is I want to set up steel men. I want, I want to set up the proper, I want, to, I want you to see the fullness of a different worldview for what it is so that we can properly compare them because I believe the Protestant worldview is, is, is proper if you look at the scriptures. And so what I want to do today is I want to correct some of those mistakes I made um, not by covering all the grounds I tried to cover in that previous episode. Rather, I want to specifically look at the doctrine of justification. Where, uh, where are Protestants and Catholics 
different on this, and I would say we are radically different. In fact, uh, the doctrine of justification was the centerpiece of the Reformation. It was right at the center. How is a person saved? How can a sinful person be justified before a holy God? That question is what separated the Reformers and the, the Catholic Church back in the 1500s, and it still divides us today. Now, if you were to go and look on Google, and you were to try to you know, say, do, do Catholics believe the same thing as Protestants when it comes to justification? Many kind of random sites might say, functionally, yes. We, we're all kind of saying the same thing. And uh, our job is to get through the uh, high-level overview, and our job is to get into the details. And I want to see what specifically are we saying the same and what specifically are we saying different so that we can compare it against the standard of Scripture and know for certain if one of these is right or wrong. And uh, I, I, you know, my big picture, if I could say my big picture right up front, my big picture on this topic is that I believe the Catholic doctrine on the ju- on the on the doctrine of justification is fundamentally wrong because in some way <clears throat> it ends up relying on human works. Now, a Catholic might not say that. I'm going to show you actually why it does. We're going to be quoting a lot from Catholic documents and from Catholic councils today. I want you to see that I believe, and I, I think it's as clear as day, that Catholic doctrine does in some way rely on human works as part, at least part of the equation of what makes a person justified before God. And the Protestant definition is exactly the opposite. The Protestant says, no, our works have nothing to do with it. Not one shred to do with it at all. It's all Christ's work, Christ's righteousness. Let me read to you a quote from R.C. Sproul. From that book that I was telling you before, uh, oh, the book is called Are We Together, by the way. Are We Together? And uh, Sproul says this, Trent, referring to the Council of Trent, which was a Catholic council that was held right around the time of the Reformation to combat a number of the challenges the Catholic Church was facing during the Reformation period. So Trent said that God does not justify anyone until real righteousness inheres within the person. In other words, God does not declare a person righteous unless he or she is righteous. So, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, justification depends on a person's sanctification. Very important language. By contrast, the Reformers said justification is based on the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus. The only grounds by which a person can be saved is Jesus' righteousness, which is reckoned to him when he believes. Okay, I'm going to... I introduced you in that quote to a handful of kind of key terms that we're going to break apart in this episode, okay? So let me jump right into it. Let's try to walk through. I'm going to show you the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism on the topic of justification, and the heart with this is to equip you. It's not to cause more division. That's not what I want to do. The division is already there. We are we are doctrinally divided on this in two very different camps, and I want us to know them, and as a Protestant pastor, I, I honestly, I want to say, let's appeal to the scriptures. This is important. The Reformation was not a wasted effort. It actually was trying to get after truth. So as we jump into this, there's one other doctrine that that we do need to kind of lay some groundwork on, and that is Roman Catholicism's uh, two streams of authority, okay? Two streams of authority. During the Protestant Reformation, there were a handful of what we call solas, the five solas. Sola just means... uh, solely, alone, right? So sola scriptura was one of those solas, kind of one of these anthemic 
kind of phrases that was used regularly, that means Protestants believe there is one source of authority, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, Protestants and Catholics both agree that Scripture is authoritative, as I'm going to read to you from Catholic documentation right now. We both share that. Now, Catholics actually have a different set of books of their Old Testament, and uh, there's a whole separate work we've done on that. Those books were added. They were never considered authoritative by the early church or any Jewish rabbi in Jesus' day. Jesus would not have used those extra books as authoritative. No one in history would ever say that. Um, But they did get added into the Catholic doctrine. However, both Catholics and Protestants agree that Scripture is authoritative. Catholics then also have a second stream of authority, and that is the tradition of the Church. So let me read you two quotes from uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is section 80. Sacred tradition and sacred Scripture, then, are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out from the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing— and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ, who promised to remain with his own always to the close of the age. Then again in section 81, sacred scripture is the speech of God, as is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. To that, Protestants would largely agree. And holy tradition transmits it in its entirety, the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it, now holy tradition, transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. Now this is, in in those two quotes, what I showed you is that Catholic doctrine believes that the traditions of the church are authoritative on an equal level in a similar way that the word of God is authoritative. So when Catholics are developing doctrine, when they're developing what do we believe on certain issues, they can appeal to two different streams of authority. And as a Protestant, I would say that has led to a number of major, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at this, but, but I would say kind of goofy traditions within the Catholic Church because there's a number of ideas that they just aren't in the scriptures, but that you will, you will find really, really highly developed within the traditions of the Catholic Church. So something like sainthood, like how is how does a certain person become a saint? What is the process for becoming a saint? How do we know if they're a saint or not? What happens to the saints after they die? Is that different from what a regular Christian goes through after they die? Um, you know, the, the, the honoring of Mary in particular ways above and beyond what we see in the Scriptures. These are things that are not found in the Scripture themselves, Right? Obviously, Mary is a very important person in the Scriptures, but we don't see her elevated to the degree that we find it in the Catholic Church with the, with the specifics that we find outlined in the Catholic Church. Those we trace to tradition. And when it comes to the topic of justification, a number of the dividers are not so much traced to the Word of God, but they're traced to the tradition, which is why this is such an important topic to start out with, so you understand where some of these ideas got developed in the Catholic Church. Again, R.C. Sproul says this, The indisputable fact is that Rome made a number of strong, clear theological affirmations at the Council of Trent. That was that council we talked about earlier. Because Trent was an ecumenical council, says Sproul, it had all the weight of the infallibility of the church behind it. So, there is a sense in which Rome, in order to maintain her triumphant view of the authority of the church and of tradition, cannot repeal the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent. What's Sproul saying? Well, if you look at Catholic history, what happened at the Council of Trent is that there were a number of kind of unwritten down 
uh, but largely agreed upon ways the Catholic Church did things. But they were never officially, like, doctrinalized. But then at the Council of Trent, because the, the Protestant Reformation was taking place, and they were losing people, and they were losing nations, and they were losing money for sure, uh, they, they started putting things down in writing. And a number of the things they put down in writing are just not what Scripture teaches. Um, in fact, if you look at the actual records, there were great debate because even within the Catholic tradition, there were those who stood up at certain points of the Council of Trent and said, whoa, 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 this is, this is not right. And yet it got written down in the Council of Trent. In later authoritative uh, councils, so we think of like Vatican I, Vatican II, these are major uh, ecumenical councils where important doctrines were laid down for the Catholic Church. Even in Vatican II, where uh, they tried to be much more friendly uh, towards Protestants especially than they had been in, in other councils, they still did not deny anything that was written down in Trent. Why? Well, they can't because it's considered authoritative, because of the high level of authority that the tradition of the church has. So, here we get to the doctrine of justification. Now, that's all background to talk about this. I think a helpful place to start might be um, in the uh, in the Protestant tradition, looking at the Westminster Confession. Why is that? Why is that helpful? Now, Protestants have their documents. Okay, we have we have our documents, but we do not believe these are authoritative. So, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a wonderful document that I think is very accurate. But I don't put it on the same page as Scripture. But I think it summarizes the Protestant tradition well. So, let me read to you from this, and, and you'll hear some key words in here that we'll get to. Uh, Section 11.1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Quote, Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Not by infusing righteousness into them. We're going to get to that language. That's Catholic language. So it says, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them. So not because they've done anything or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. So it's saying, not because they've been given some kind of righteousness and now they're found righteousness, they're found righteous, so that's the basis of their justification. No, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. They, receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Now, a handful of things in here, and we're going to really break this apart. That's the Protestant overview of this, and I, I believe the very biblical overview of this. Notice right at the front it says, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Important language there. Freely justifies. That doesn't mean that grace is a, a free gift. Of course grace is a free gift. What it's saying there is that God is not dependent on any other factor outside of his decree when making decisions of who he will justify. He is not dependent on us. He is not dependent on any other force outside of God himself. He is free from every other pressure that might put pressure on him to determine who's going to be saved or not, including ourselves. He, he acts freely. Now, there was a language in there that I said to get to, and it was this. Westminster said, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins. That language of infusing righteousness is actually at the center of the divide. Catholics Catholics believe that what happens when you are justified, when, actually specifically when you're baptized, when you get baptized, um, righteousness is infused into you so that you actually become righteous. 
And it's on that grounds of your righteousness that you then have, that you are then justified before God. Now, that is very, now we're going to get to that again. Let me say it again. So Catholics believe that when you are baptized, well, I'll show you the quotes for this. When you're baptized, you are infused with righteousness so that you actually become righteous. And now the basis of your justification is not someone else's righteousness, not Christ's, but your own, because you actually are righteous before God because it's been infused in you. Now, that's very different from what Protestants believe and what I believe the the scriptures say. Protestants believe that grace is imputed to you, not infused in you, but imputed to you. It's imputed righteousness. Now, we use this language very often. Um, So we talk about uh, double imputation in the Protestant tradition. Double imputation means that at the cross, when you put your faith in Christ, two things are happening. Your sins are being imputed to Christ. He's taking your sins on his shoulders, and his righteousness is being imputed to you. What does imputed mean? Well, think of Romans chapter 4, verse 3. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. That's imputation. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Was Abraham righteous? No. He was a sinful man. He continued to make sinful choices. And yet, God counted him as righteous. In other words, God credited an amount to Abraham's ledger that was not naturally his. Now, in the same way, the same book, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, says that's exactly how God treats us when we put our faith in Jesus. Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him. So the one who doesn't do works, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So it's counted to him. It's imputed to him. It's not his own righteousness that he actually has, but through faith, he is counted as righteousness with someone else's righteousness. Now, infusion. Infusion, like I said, is the opposite of that. Infusion believes that you have actually become righteous. This is very different. And that it's on the grounds of your own righteousness that you're then justified before God. So one of the great systematic theologians of Protestant history, Francis Turretin, he very clearly spells out the difference between Catholics and Protestants on this doctrine. He says this, he asks, and, and by the way, his systematic theology is called Institutes of Elenctic Theology. He, he does a lot of questions and answers, so that's what you'll hear here. here. He says, uh, is the impulsive and meritorious cause, and we'll get to that language, meritorious cause, but the, the reason, the meritorious reason whereby we're saved. So is the impulsive and meritorious cause, on account of which man is justified in the judgment of God, inherent righteousness infused into us or good works? Hear that word infused? So he's saying, is the reason, the basis that we're saved, Inherent righteousness, our own righteousness that has been infused into us or good works. And then he says, we deny this claim against the Romanists, against the Roman Catholics. So he's laying out, this is what Catholics believe. And then he says, Protestants do not agree with this. Now, notice how he's using the term meritorious cause, meritorious cause. I'm getting a little out of order here, but I need you to understand what he's saying there. Catholics, um, I think one of the challenges, Catholic doctrine, this is not just on this topic, but it's all over the place. Catholics have, throughout history, borrowed a lot from Greek philosophy, specifically from Aristotle. 
A lot of this is because of Thomas Aquinas, who's one of the greats in the Catholic tradition. Thomas Aquinas had a lot to say, uh, and actually he said a lot of really amazing things, probably one of the smartest men that ever walked the face of the planet. And yet, what Thomas Aquinas functionally tried to do is he tried to baptize Aristotle. He tried to take Aristotelian philosophy and show how the Christian faith actually is very friendly with Aristotle's philosophy. And uh, he was just wrong to do that. Um, and Protestants, that's why we have sola scriptura. Scripture says, do not be taken captive by empty philosophy. Don't, don't do that. And I think Aquinas was mistaken. In fact, that's one of the reasons I think he didn't finish his works in the end is because I think he came to that realization. Wonderful story about that uh, toward the end of his life. However, um, when it talks about a meritorious cause, that's Aristotle's language. Aristotle laid out in his philosophy four specific and, in fact, five different causes of a thing. Five different causes of a thing. And I'm going to, I probably should have it pulled up in front of me, but let me give you kind of an overview of what that is. So, for example, let's say a, sculpt, a sculptor is making a sculpture. So, a, an artist is making a sculpture. Well, there's a number of different causes, says Aristotle, of the sculpture. You could say that the formal cause is, let's say, that he was hired by a king to make the sculpture. That's the formal cause. Okay. Well, then the instrumental cause is the, you know, the wedge and the knife that he uses to carve, to carve the clay. That's the answer. So there's two different causes. There's the, and then there's another cause in there. The blueprint within the artist's mind has some kind of cause, and I forget the term he uses for that, um, right? So there, there's these five different causes, says Aristotle, to one event, and you have to know what cause you're speaking about to kind of really be specific. Well, in Catholic tradition, as we'll see, they actually believe that the meritorious cause, as Francis Turton was just arguing against, the meritorious cause, the, the instrumental cause, if you will, whereby a person is found justified is our own righteousness. They would say the formal cause, the formal cause is the righteousness of Christ, is God's decree. And to that, Protestants and Catholics agree. We're agreeing on that, on the formal cause. But where Catholics take a different step is they then say, the meritorious cause is our own righteousness. Now, uh, Turretin goes on. He says, for although they, the Catholics, do not appear to exclude entirely the righteousness of Christ, as we just talked about the formal cause, inasmuch as they hold that by it he merited that God should communicate to us by the Holy Spirit internal righteousness, and thus it is a condition of the formal cause and then he puts in parentheses, i.e., of inherent righteousness, that it may be given to man, and parentheses. Still, they maintain that the right to seek life depends upon inherent righteousness. That's infused righteousness. And on, and on that account, and that on account of it, God justifies us. So again, what's he saying? Turretin is laying out the Catholic position. He's saying the meritorious cause, according to Catholics, is our own inherent righteousness. And he says that is what is so wrong. Okay, now Louis Burkhoff, who is a wonderful systematic theologian, writes this. He says, with respect to the nature of justification, the reformers corrected the error of confounding justification with sanctification. Okay, justification, I'm going to end his quote there just for a second. Justification is the moment at which we we are justified before God. Sanctification is the the process of becoming made more Christ-like, of growing in your righteousness over time. He says, the reformers corrected the error of confounding justification with sanctification by stressing its legal character and representing it as an act of God's free grace. 
whereby he pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, but does not change us inwardly. As far as the ground of justification is concerned, they rejected, the reformers rejected the idea of Rome that this lies at least in part in the inherent righteousness of the regenerate and in good works and substituted for it the doctrine that is found only in the imputed righteousness of the Redeemer. Now, let me show you the Catholic, actually, the, the statements of the Catholicism, at least a couple of them. We can't get to all of them, obviously that shows you this distinction between the formal cause and the meritorious cause, okay? So Louis Burkhoff, Francis Turretin, they were just rep, uh, talking about th- this distinction here. So here's the Catholic Church from the canons and the decrees of the Council of Trent. The formal cause of it, of our justification, is the righteousness of God, not that by which he is himself righteous, but that by which he makes us righteous and by which bestowed upon us as his gift, we are renewed in the spirit of our mind and are not only accounted, but are truly called and are righteous. Hear it there? We are righteous. Receiving each of us righteousness in ourselves according to our measure, which the spirit distributes to everyone as he wills and according to the peculiar dispositions and cooperations of everyone. Then again, in uh, session six, canon 11, It reads this, if any man shall say that men are justified solely by the remission of sins to the exclusion of grace and charity, which is shed abroad in our hearts. So basically, if if you say what Protestants say, by the spirit and is inherent in them, inherent in them, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be accursed. What they're just saying is, if anyone holds the Protestant position on this, let him be accursed, let him go to hell. They are saying in the Catholic doctrine, that once you are baptized, you are infused with righteousness, and it's on that account, it's on your righteousness that is the meritorious cause, that is the cause of your justification. Now again, the way they try to get around this is by having these this formal cause and this meritorious cause. And to that, we would just I, I would just say that is Greek philosophy. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not you know, that doesn't mean that there's not some kind of sense in which you can look at objects and and recognize the different categories of causes in them. But what it's not biblical to talk about our justification in this way. You won't, you will find that in Aristotle. You won't find that in the Bible. Francis Turretin goes on to say this, is the righteousness and obedience of Christ imputed to us the meritorious cause and foundation of our justification with God? He says, we affirm against the Romans and the Sicinians. So against the Roman Catholic Church, we affirm. Is the righteousness and obedience of Christ imputed to us? Is that what is the meritorious cause? Christ's imputation, we affirm. In other words, we deny that the meritorious cause is our own righteousness. It's all Christ's righteousness. Okay, very important. Now, this is where it starts to get really funky, okay? Within the Roman Catholic Church, imagine, imagine the situation. You get baptized, and as in the Roman Catholic Church, they do that at infancy, and, and really that functions a lot like an insurance policy because, because your, your justification is based on that baptism moment where you are infused with righteousness. Now, if anything happens to that child, they're righteous and therefore justified. Well, if that child grows up to, to sin, well, then, then you have a problem, right? Because... Because now you're showing that you're not righteous and therefore not justified. 
and, and that's where we get into a second sacrament of the Catholic Church, which is penance. So let me walk through a handful of quotes here from the Catholic I'm going to set all this up so that you can understand with clarity what, how this works in the Catholic Church. So section uh, 1992, I think this is from the Catholic Catechism. Yeah, the, Ro- the 1995 Roman Catholic Catechism of Faith reads this. Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ, who offered himself on the cross as a living victim. We would agree with that. Holy and pleasing to God, and whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men. Justification is conferred in baptism. We would disagree with this. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. Its purpose is the glory of God in Christ and the gift of eternal life. So again, what I'm showing you is baptism for a Catholic is that moment where you are inwardly conformed into a righteous state and thereby justified because your justification is in some part, your meritorious cause of that is your own righteousness. Now again, Protestants would disagree with this. We're justified by grace through faith. It's the moment you put your faith in Jesus that you are justified. It's not the moment of baptism, okay? Now, section 2020 reads this. Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted us through baptism. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who justifies us. It has for its goal the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. It is the most excellent work of God's mercy. One more, section 1999 reads this. The grace of Christ is the gratuitous gift that God makes to us of his own life infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul to heal it of sin and sanctify it. It is the sanctifying or deifying grace received in baptism. It is in us the source of the work of sanctification. Now, all of that, the reason I'm quoting those is to show you, baptism for the Catholics is the, the sacrament whereby righteousness is infused into a person, and therefore, on that account of their own righteousness, they are justified, okay? But what happens when you sin? Well, in the Catholic Church, there's two different types of sin. There's venial sin and there's mortal sin. Mortal sin is mortal because it, 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 it's such a bad sin, some kind of sin is so bad that you can lose your state of justification and therefore lose your salvation. So again, let me read to you from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. It says, For whoever offends God even by one mortal sin, instantly forfeits whatsoever merits he has previously acquired through the death of Christ on the cross and is entirely shut out from the gate of paradise, which, when previously closed, was thrown open to all by our Savior's passion. So what it's saying in Catholic doctrine is if you commit a mortal sin, you've lost your righteousness and therefore you've lost, you've lost your state of justification. Now that, so Protestants, Calvin, Calvin writes a lot about this. He, he really argues with the Catholics on this. All, according to Calvin, all sin is mortal. That, that's, that, that's the doctrine. The wages of sin is death, is separation from God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if the wages of sin is death, all sin is mortal. All sin causes death. Even the lightest of sins, the slightest transgression against God, is a, is a revealer of our own unrighteousness and therefore worthy of the justice of God, which has been declared as death. It's mortal sin. But Catholics believe there's this separation. There are some sins that are mortal, and they separate you from God. And then it says this, so what can a person who's fallen into mortal sin do? Well, the Council of Trent, the Catechism of the Council of Trent reads this, according to the Catholics. 
Whoever desires to recover the grace of baptism forfeited by mortal sins must have recourse to another means of expiation, namely the sacrament of penance. Okay, so now we get to penance. Now, we're going to talk about what penance is in a second, but basically if you fall into mortal sin, there's certain works you can do that will restore you to your previous justified state. So, this is the Catechism of the Catholic Church again. Ask this question. In what manner the name of God can he sanctified among sinners? Okay? Can, w- w- how can he be sanctified? It says, Our desires and prayers also extend no less to those who, contaminated by crimes and enormities, have lost their spotless integrity of baptism. So someone who's fallen into mortal sin. And the robe of innocence, whence the most foul spirit has again taken up his abode in those most unhappy beings. So it's end quote for a second, the, the Catholic Church is saying, we have great pity and mercy on those who have fallen into mortal sin. And then it goes on. We therefore desire and beseech of God that in them also his name might be hallowed, that returning to the heart and unto holiness they may recover through the sacrament of penance their former holiness and present themselves a pure and holy temple and dwelling to God. Okay, so... Within the Catholic Church, if you fall into mortal sin, you can do certain works that then make you restored into your justification. These are called penance. So you go to a priest, and a priest will oversee this. In fact, the pre, uh, according to Catholic doctrine, the, the priest has particular powers, and the, the, the priest has particular authority to um, adjudicate what is the proper penance that needs to be done for any particular mortal sin. It will involve confession. Again, these are things Protestants would agree on. Protestants agree on confession. If you sin, right, as a Christian, you need to confess that sin, right? Confess your sins to Jesus. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We, we are constantly confessing our sin. We agree with Catholics on that. Where we don't agree is that works, penance, can then restore you in some way, based on your works, then restore you to that state of justification. Now, how do Catholics get around this? Because, remember, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, are really important. And what do they say? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, reads this. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Well, if penance is a work then you'd be able to boast on it. So how do Catholics get around this? Well, what they say is that there's two different kinds of merit, and they're pulling from the early church fathers here. This is language that was used in the early church fathers, Um, but again, it's it's not biblical language. So the early church fathers are not the authority here. They they, they said a lot of good things, but they said some wrong things as well. But they, they separate what kind of merit there is. They say there's what's called condign merit. Again, this sounds so fancy and technical, but the purpose of this podcast is to help you, is to really navigate this with clarity. There's condign merit, and then there's congruous merit. Condign merit demands a reward. So if I go to work and I earn you know, my paycheck, I've, I've condignly merited uh, my paycheck. I've earned it. So that is not what penance is, said, says the Catholics, Okay. You're not earning anything. Rather, it's congruous merit. It's real merit, but it's dependent on previous grace. So notice this. They would, they would proclaim it as real merit, 
but it's dependent on previous grace. So it, it's not the it's not the merit that actually ends up saving you, but it is a work that has actual meritorious results that restore you back into your position that you had before. It's dependent on previous grace. Now, now this is problematic for the Christian, for the Protestant, because we do not believe that works have anything to do with our salvation. Penance cannot in any way take part of the equation of how a person is saved. I I believe that would be to fundamentally miss the gospel. And unfortunately, it it is clear from Catholic doctrine that both in the the sacrament of baptism and in the sacrament of penance, there is a self-righteousness that is taking place. We are justified because of our own righteousness of what our state is. And I do not believe that is what the scriptures teach is uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 28. A man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, I think this is fundamentally clear. I do not see how the Roman Catholic Church can, can, can state all of these things in their councils and doctrines, hold them to be true, when I believe, I think it's as clear as day, we cannot be relying on works in any way to shape our own justification. Richard Baxter, in a book called Spiritual Peace and Comfort, says this, No man may look at his own graces as a part of his legal righteousness in conjunction with Christ's righteousness as the other part. We must go wholly out of ourselves and deny and disclaim all such righteousness of our own. What's, what's Richard Baxter saying? He's saying the Catholic Church is wrong to in any way, even in the slightest bit, bring our own works into the equation of what makes us just before a holy God. Recently, I was going through William Shedd's dogmatic theology, and he, he he was writing in a section on the perseverance of the saints, which is a doctrine of the Protestant church that says, once Christ justifies you, he will bring your faith to completion. He will never let you go. There's nothing you could ever do to lose that salvation. And so a person who, you know, uh, commits apostasy and walks away from their previously declared Christian faith, they were never actually justified to begin with. they, They were deceiving themselves and perhaps others, but they had never actually truly been justified before God because once a person justifies a person, once God justifies a person, he brings that faith to completion. Now, while William Shedd was not necessarily commenting on this conversation today in this section, I think his arguments for the perseverance of the saints, at least some of them, really paint an important picture for us. He says this, Three arguments I'll list out here. He says, faith is the instrument, not the meritorious cause of justification. And then he adds, and faith is a gift itself. It doesn't come from ourself. So notice he's, he's combating Catholic doctrine here. He says, faith is the instrument, not the meritorious cause. And then he quotes Ephesians 2.8, which I just read, which says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And he quotes Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Notice, it's been granted to you, it's been given to you, it's been gifted to you that you should believe in him. That faith is a gift itself, right? So it, it can't be dependent on our own work it's, it, as the meritorious cause. It's completely dependent on God. The second argument he makes is this, Justification, biblically, 
is both instantaneous and complete. It's instantaneous and it's complete. So Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Look, Romans chapter 8 is by, considered by many to be the most beautiful chapter in the whole Bible. The whole point of that is that if you're in Christ, the, 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 there is no more condemnation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can do that. Romans 8, 33 to 34. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So again, if is there some way that you can commit a mortal sin and fall out of your justified state and then you have to work your way back into that? No, according to Romans 8. That's impossible says William Shedd. And then he quotes John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has it. It's his. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He's passed. The passing is over. He's passed from death to life. You don't then go back to life or back to death and then have to go back into life again. No, you've already passed from death to life. And then lastly, his third argument is this. All of our sins are forgiven at our justification, past, present, and future. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, he has perfected, for how long? For all time, those who are being sanctified. And then he quotes again Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, which I read at the start of this episode, which says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Martin Luther, the German monk who started the, the Reformation, he, uh, he had this wonderful short little phrase that summarizes the division between Catholics and Protestants and, and, and really summarizes what the, the Reformation was all about. He said, in the same time, at the same time, just and sinner. At the same time, we are just and sinner. And he gets this right from the scriptures. It, he says, we are just. We've been justified by God. But we're also sinners. We're, we don't have an in, inherent righteousness. That's what, when he says this, Martin Luther is He's kind of ripping on the Catholic doctrine of justification. He's saying we're not just and inherently righteous because of our baptism. We're justified by God despite our sinful nature. We're not inherently righteous with an infused righteousness and then on, on an account of our own righteousness found worthy of justification. No, 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 no. No, we're sinful, yet because of Christ's imputed righteousness and what he's done for us, we're counted as just. Christian, this is such good news. Look, I'm laying this out because I want you to know the good news that is yours in Christ. You can never perish. You can never, this is great news of Christ's defeat of death. We are no longer under the law which condemns us, Romans 6, 14. The law condemns, but we're not under the law anymore. We've already received eternal life and the Holy Spirit's been given to us as a seal. A seal is a forever document that will be re, that will be redeemed at the day of Christ Jesus. That seal cannot be removed. Can you imagine if you fell in the Catholic Church? You've been given the spiel, seal of the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 1.14, and then you fall into mortal sin, and then what? The seal gets taken off of you? 
No, the scriptures say it will be brought to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 1 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. See, this is, we, this is so important. The reason I did this episode is I want to equip us, and if you're Catholic and you're listening to this, I, I, I do want you to know the division here. The Catholic Church does insert human works in some degree, in some fashion, if even in the slightest way, into the equation of what makes a person justified before God. And I believe the Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. That is what the whole Reformation was fought over. And it was a worthy fight. R.C. Sproul says, This means that the Reformation is not over. We must continue to stand firm in proclaiming the biblical gospel. Are Catholics saved? Well, that, that's an interesting question. Are Protestants saved? <laughs> you know, you know, what, yes. Yes and no. It depends. I think the average Catholic does not realize what the Catholic Church is teaching on these things, what the actual documents of the Catholic Church really teach. Because if you really believe what the Catholic documents teach on this, that we are justified based on an infused righteousness and ultimately our works are playing a part of what what justifies us before a holy God in any way, then I think we don't understand the gospel. I think we have a shallow version of the gospel that's relying part on Christ and part on our works. And that is not the gospel. We're not saved by our works. And so, I, honestly, I don't think many Catholics actually think this. I think there are many Catholics who have a, an honest relationship with Jesus Christ, a, a, a fairly good understanding, actually, of the Protestant gospel, <laughs> of the biblical gospel. And I think they'd be shocked to actually know what the, the Catholic doctrine actually teaches. Um, but, but I think that if we are relying, if someone is actually looking at the Catholic doctrine and saying, no, I, I, I do, I am relying on my works in some way to be a part of the equation of what, how, what saves me, I, I have great trouble with that. And uh, I will let God be the judge of, of, of who is saved and who is not, but I believe that that is a false teaching that is not biblical. And, and we need to make sure that not only does it not slip into the Protestant church, but we need to make sure that we clearly separate these two so we can label them appropriately, not to cause division, but to reveal the division that already exists between Protestants and Catholics. The Reformation is not complete yet. There is still work to do. So I hope this has helped you. Again, this is a little different. I normally don't go into this many quotes. Hopefully you didn't lose me and get uh, uninterested as we get into so many quotes. But I wanted you to be equipped with the actual source documentation. Uh, So hopefully this blesses you. I actually wrote a blog that covers all of this and has all the quotes in it. I'm going to include that in the uh, description of this podcast. So if you need to go back, look those quotes up. That'll all be there for you. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, if you liked what you heard, give us a five-star rating. Pass this on to your friends. Pass this on to those you love. If you have questions or concerns, or if you feel like I was being imprecise, if I got anything wrong, again, I do my best to be studious and to uh, be accurate in what I say. We serve a precise God, and so I want to be a precise pastor. Let me know, parkquestions at gmail.com. You can send those my way. But as always, I hope you're blessed. And Lord willing, see you next week.